it has been said that the Jewish people have attended the funerals of all who have desired their destruction. And history bears this out. For almost 4,000 years, the Jews have faced multiple attempts by others to completely destroy them. And yet, God's chosen people are still here. For example, I think we are most familiar with the Holocaust carried out by Adolf Hitler and his Nazi party, where in just a few years, some six million Jews were systematically murdered. It was a terrible slaughter on an unimaginable scale. But Hitler would die. His Nazi party would be dissolved. And the Jewish people would survive. Even thrive. For later in 1948, they officially formed the state of Israel. It was a historical event. It was a biblical event. And it was an event that enraged the enemies of God. For almost immediately, several of the Arab neighbors invaded Israel and tried to destroy them. They failed. And later in 1967 and in 1973, there were other attempts to destroy Israel by her neighbors. But they failed also. Today, terrorist groups like Hamas publicly cry for the extermination of the Jews. They believe it is their religious obligation to slaughter them all. And their popularity in the region is growing. For Israel, a country the size of New Jersey, there is no sign of let-up. And there will be no let-up. Because according to the Bible, the campaign to destroy the Jews will continue all the way into the tribulation period. Now this morning, 
We're going backwards in history to see a previous attempt to exterminate the Jews. Last week, we started Esther chapter 3. And we looked at the first six verses where we learned a few things. If you recall, Mordecai had saved the king's life. But instead of Mordecai being exalted, this guy Haman comes out of nowhere and is promoted to the chief of staff. Haman is now the number two guy in the Persian Empire. And in his exalted position, he has great power and unquestioned authority. And he expects to be respected. As the chief of staff, Haman is probably allowed greater access to the king, frequently going back and forth to the palace through the king's gate, which we talked about last week. And everyone at the king's gate was commanded to bow before Haman as a sign of respect. And that's what everybody did. Almost everybody. There was one stubborn holdout. Mordecai will not bow before Haman. He does not respect Haman, even though he is the number two guy in the known world. And when pressed for a reason by the other officials, Mordecai reveals he is a Jew. Now, if you remember from last week, that was significant. Mordecai was a Jew and Haman was an Agagite, a descendant of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were age-old enemies of the Jews. Well, eventually, Haman is told about Mordecai's disrespect and that he was a Jew. And my guess is Haman knew their history and had been taught to hate the Jews from childhood. And now, this disrespect from Mordecai makes it personal. Mordecai lit a raging fire of hatred under Haman. And Haman was in the position to do something about it. 
He wants to kill Mordecai. But not just Mordecai. He wants to exterminate all the Jews under the rule of the Persian Empire. So that brings us to Esther chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. So if you have your Bible, Esther chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. should be on the board behind me. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, Pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month until the twelfth month. That is the month of Adar. To stop there. It was the twelfth year of the reign of King Ahasuerus. Some five years after Esther had become queen. And it was the first month of the year on the Jewish calendar, which is the month of Nisan. Which for us falls somewhere around the April... May time frame. Okay? Anyway, the first month of the year was looked upon by the Persians as a time for determining the best moment to carry out future actions throughout the year. And so, as a a New Year's ritual, the Persian astrologers would be called upon to cast lots, literally rolling the dice, in order to select the lucky moment for certain activities to ensure the outcome would be successful and pleasing to their gods. Well, in this passage, we are told the dice are rolled in the presence of Haman. Apparently, it's a private session. You have the picture of the dice up? And it's for the purpose of selecting the best time to exterminate the Jews. The dice are rolled. And they fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar, which for us is around the February-March time frame. So according to the dice, Haman has almost a year to set his plan into motion to rid himself of the Jews once and for all. This is what Haman wants. This is what Satan has always wanted. And now, it would seem the lucky stars are aligned 
And everything is falling into place for both of them. Obviously, this rolling of the dice leaves a lot to chance. But dice or no dice, do not forget that God is working behind the scenes. Working behind what is not seen. And to get really specific here, we are told in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. In other words, cast your lots, roll your dice, but that does not change the truth that God is still in control. And in this particular circumstance, in His divine providence, God gives the Jews almost almost a year to prepare for what is to come. So Haman still has work to do to carry out his plan against the Jews. And that brings us to verse 8. And we are told, this is good, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in the provinces, in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So, it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasures. As the chief of staff, Haman likely has frequent access to King Ahasuerus. And on this one particular occasion, Haman tells the king about a certain people. Did you notice that Haman avoids identifying these people as Jews? He only refers to them as certain people. And he actually has two really good reasons for doing this. Let's look in Ezra, chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, 
so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. This decree to help the Jews return to the promised land to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the temple came from King Cyrus. He's the grandfather of Ahasuerus. That's the first reason Haman has for not mentioning the Jews by name. But it doesn't stop there. Ezra chapter 6, verse 8 and 12. We read this. Moreover, I issue a decree concerning what you are to do for these elders of Judah in the rebuilding of this house of God. The full cost is to be paid to these people from the royal treasury out of the taxes of providences beyond the river. And that without delay. Whatever is needed, both young bulls, rams, and lambs for a burnt offering to the God of heaven, and wheat, salt, wine, and anointing oil, as the priests in Jerusalem request, it is to be given to them daily without fail that they may offer acceptable sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. And I issued a decree that any man who violates this edict, a timber shall be drawn from his house and he shall be impaled on it, that's bad, impaled on it, and his house shall be made a refuse heap on account of this. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overflow, overthrow any king or people who attempts to change it so as to destroy this house of God in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have issued this decree. Let it be carried out. 
with all diligence. After the decree from Cyrus was discovered, King Darius issues his own decree in support of the Jews. And just so you know, Darius is the father of King Ahasuerus. So Haman can't come out and say these people are Jews. Because the father and the grandfather of the king had been favorable to them in the past. And that could pose a problem for Haman in the present. So it's certain people. Certain people. But Haman is not done. He tells the king, these people are scattered throughout the Persian Empire. And that's a true statement. They were all over the place. He says their laws are different from those of other people, which is a generalization of the truth. For the Jews are God's chosen people, and their laws are God's laws. But then Haman, Haman tells the king these people are rebellious and they don't follow the laws of the king. Yes, the Jews had a rebellious streak. That's why they were in exile in the first place. But it was an outright lie that the Jews did not follow the laws of the land. For the Jews were known to be loyal citizens who sought to live in peace. So Haman claims these certain people are different and rebellious. Rebellious against the king. And because they are different and rebellious, it would be in the king's best interest that they be destroyed. And then to seal the deal, so to speak, Haman says, it won't cost you anything. Haman offered to pay for the whole thing. Ten thousand talents of silver, which would equate to 375 tons of silver. Which would equal about two-thirds of the annual revenue of the entire empire. That's a lot of silver. I suspect that Haman was aware that the previous unsuccessful invasion of Greece took a heavy toll on the royal treasury. And with that knowledge, he expressed a willingness to pick up the tab. He's just going to pick up the tab for the extermination of the Jews. But does Haman really have that kind of money? 
No, I don't think so. Instead, his plan would be funded by the confiscation of the homes and the property and the possessions of the Jews he killed. The plunder from the Jews would be used to fund their own extermination. And it should not surprise anyone that Adolf Hitler took a page from the Haman playbook and much of his war effort was funded by the confiscated properties of the Jews. That came from the Haman playbook. So Haman conceals his real motives. He hides his personal hatred. He mentions nothing about this long-standing blood feud between the Jews and the Amalekites. Instead, he simply tickles the king's ear, feeding him with nothing but generalizations and half-truths and outright lies. Things he knows that will resonate with the king. And without any follow-up questions, the king, the gullible king, takes the bait. And beginning with verse 10, we are told this. The king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamdathah, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, the silver is yours and the people also to do with them as you please. Without caring enough to even ask any questions about these certain people, the king took his signet ring and gave it to Haman, which would be the equivalent of the king giving a rubber stamp with his signature on it. With the king's ring in hand, like having a signed blank check, Haman could now create any document he pleased and put the king's seal on it. And the document had to be accepted as law and obeyed. With the ring, King Ahasuerus gave Haman full authority to exterminate a people he knew nothing about. Only what he was told by Haman. 
the king tells Haman, the silver is yours. Fully expecting that Haman would then insist he take it, as would be the custom. And the king also says, those people you mentioned, they are yours too. Do with them as you please. Haman had the position. He had the power. And he had the authority. It would seem he had everything he needed to do. What others before him could not do. What armies before him could not do. He will single-handedly destroy the Jews once and for all. Haman is having a great day. And it gets even better. Let's continue with verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month. And it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each providence, and to the princes of each people. Each providence according to its script. Each people according to its language. Being written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day. The 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. And to seize their possessions as plunder. A copy of the edict to be issued as law in every providence was published to all the people so that they should be ready for this day. The couriers went out, impaled by the, by the king's command, while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa. And while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. So the story quickly moves to the 13th day of the first month. The month of Nisan. And on that day, the decree of doom was created. Royal scribes were summoned and they wrote out the official orders given to them by Haman. They were translated into the languages of those in the empire. They were stamped with the king's royal seal and they were distributed 
by couriers to all the regional officials and all the governors across the known world. Every providence within the Persian Empire received the order to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews. It was a license to kill. That's what it was. It was a license to kill. An empire-wide death sentence on the Jews. Announced in advance. And it was to be carried out on one single day. The 13th day of the 12th month. The month of Adar. We're told that after the plan was set into motion and the extermination order was issued for all to see, the king and Haman sat down to drink. It was Miller time. To celebrate a job well done. While the people in the city of Susa, probably the first to receive this order, were left in confusion. The population were perplexed because they knew Jewish people who lived among them. They knew them to be good citizens who caused no trouble. So they were confused that such an order was issued declaring that these Jews were so were so terrible and worthy of death. They were confused. Now at this point in the story of Esther, it would appear that everything is stacked against the Jews. There's no place to run and there's no place to hide. And for almost an entire year, think about this, for almost an entire year, the Jews would live in misery knowing their doom was approaching. So Haman just doesn't want to kill the Jews. He wants to torture them as their public execution draws near. This had to be agonizing for the Jews. But there's also an interesting irony here. And let me explain. I want to take you way back in the Old Testament to the Exodus story. You know the story, right? If you remember, there was a time when the Jews were in bondage by the Egyptians. And for 400 years, 
The Jews lived as slaves under harsh and hostile conditions, right? When the time was right, God raised up Moses. And it would be through Moses that God would deliver his people out of Egypt. As you know, Moses goes before Pharaoh with a message from God. Let my people go. But Pharaoh shrugs it off because he has no plans of letting his workforce go. So God sends a series of plagues and disasters upon Egypt to reveal his mighty power. And although that had some effect, God, Pharaoh hardened his heart against God and would not let the Jews go. Finally, the moment came for the final plague. And this time, Pharaoh would have no choice but to release the Jews. If you recall, God told Moses that at midnight, on a certain night, he would go through the land of Egypt and every firstborn son in Egypt would die at an instant. God made it clear that no family would be spared in this, from the Pharaoh's house to the home of the lowest slave. But God would spare the Jews that night on one condition. They were commanded to slaughter an unblemished lamb and to place some of its blood on the doorframe of their home. They were told that God would see the blood of the lamb on the doorframe and literally pass over their house. But if God did not see the blood on the doorframe, he would take the life of the firstborn in judgment. Well, it happened exactly as God said it would happen. And Pharaoh released the Jews. And for every year since then, Beginning on a certain day, the Jews have been commanded to observe the Passover as a reminder of God's deliverance. Now, you might be asking, why did I even bring this up? Where's the relevance? Let's circle back to verse 12. 
we are told. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month. And it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each providence, and to the princes of each people, each providence according to its script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. We are told that this decree of doom, I like to call it, the decree of doom was written on the 13th, the 13th of Nisan, the first month of the Jewish calendar. Okay? What it says. The decree of doom was written on the 13th of Nisan. But ironically, the beginning of Passover, a time to remember God's deliverance was to start each year on the 14th of Nisan. The very next day. When this decree of doom hits the streets, faithful Jews were remembering God's deliverance. And to me, in God's providence, it's as if God was quickly reminding His people, no matter what others may say about your doom, do not forget, I can deliver you. Yes, the king has blindly ordered your destruction. But I am the king of kings. And I see it all. And I can deliver you. During World War II, A U.S. Marine was separated from his unit on an island in the Pacific. The fighting had been intense. And in the smoke and the crossfire, he had lost touch of his unit. Alone in the jungle, he could hear the enemy soldiers coming in his direction. Scrambling for cover, 
he found his way up a high ridge to several small caves in the rock. Quickly, he crawled inside one of the caves. Although safe for a moment, he realized that once the enemy soldiers swept up the ridge, they would quickly search all the caves and he would be killed. As he waited, he prayed, Lord, if it be your will, please protect me. Whatever your will, though, I love you and trust you. Amen. After praying, he lay quietly listening to the enemy soldiers begin to draw close. He thought, well, I guess the Lord isn't going to help me out on this one. Then he saw a spider begin to build a web over the front of his cave. As he watched, listening to the enemy searching for him, all the while the spider layered strand after strand of web across the opening of the cave. He thought to himself, what I need is a brick wall. And the Lord has sent me a spider web. As the enemy drew closer, he watched from the darkness of his hideout and could see them searching one cave after another. As they came to his, he got ready to make his last stand. But to his amazement, after they glanced in the direction of his cave, they moved on. Suddenly, he realized that with the spider web over the entrance, his cave looked as if no one had entered for quite a while. Lord, forgive me, prayed the young man. I had, I had forgotten that in you, a spider's web is stronger and a brick wall. Like this Marine, like the Jews, we all face times of great trouble. And when we do, it is so easy to get distracted on the apparent doom And forget who we serve and the deliverance that God can bring. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that you are faithful. As we sung earlier, great is your faithfulness. Lord, unto me. You are faithful even though we are not. You are true to your promises. You are true to your word. You can be trusted. Thank you for your goodness.
Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your patience. You're so good to us. Father, I pray that you would draw us to you, especially in those times when life seems dark and hopeless and helpless. Help us to see you clearly. Help us to experience your love when it seems like we're unloved. Help us to know you are there when it seems like you are elsewhere. Help us to know you. Help us to trust you. May you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name. Amen. I was reading uh, in the Old Testament this week specifically about um, how the Jews were to prepare for Passover, how they were to implement that celebration. And we're told on the the tenth of Nisan, which would be the first month of the Jewish calendar, the tenth. Each family would bring in a unblemished lamb into their house. Into their house. A baby lamb into your house on the tenth. How tough would that be? Cute little baby lamb. Unblemished lamb. You could get attached to that, couldn't you? I know Liz could. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think that was the intention. I think that was the intention that you got attached to. It became personal. They brought this lamb into the house on the 10th. And on the 14th of Nisan, they were commanded to kill it. How painful was that? It's been argued for centuries. As to the date when Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world when he was crucified. Some say it was the 14th of Nisan. Others say the 15th. But for the sake of argument, what if it was the 14th? Of Nissan. How ironic would that be? How ironic that the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, 
would be slaughtered for our deliverance. A lot of irony there. Slaughtered for our deliverance. Because the truth is, all and all of us were facing doom. The wages of sin is death. We were all facing doom. The enemy had us in his grasp. We were all facing doom. But Jesus, the Lamb of God, sacrificed himself so that you and I, so that those who would place their faith in him might be delivered. I thank God for my deliverance. I think it's also important to note we have to come to this place where we take the Lord at his word. We take him at his word. The world may say you are doomed. But what does God say? You're my child. I love you. You are mine. I chose you. You are mine. That's what he says. There are times, I will admit, there are times when I feel God is distant. There are times in my life when it feels like God's attention is elsewhere. Dealing with more important things than me. There are times when I feel abandoned. But what does God say? I'm with you always. You're mine. You can take me at my word. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You are mine. It might feel like doom, but we are delivered. We are delivered. And I thank God for that. Maybe you are here this morning and, boy, all you experience is doom. You feel hopeless and helpless. There is a deliverer. His name is Jesus Christ. I'd love to share you. Share him with you. Maybe you're looking for a church home. 
we'd love to have you. And maybe there's something else going on. And you just need prayer. I would love to pray with you. However you feel moved, I just ask you to obey him and respond to him. Let me uh, close us in prayer. I'm going to pray for our offering and fellowship. But also, before we, we enjoy our, our time of uh, our lunch, I want to invite everybody out to the, uh, the tent out there. And we have a couple baptisms um, to uh, partake in. So let me pray. Father, again, I thank you so much uh, for this time with uh, brothers and sisters. Uh, Lord, I, I appreciate them so much. Heavenly Father, I, I pray that, that uh, however this message impacted people, Lord God, I pray that it would just wouldn't stay here, but go beyond these walls. Father, help us to live what we believe. Lord, I pray for our offering this morning, and Lord God, I pray that you bless the gift and the giver. And as a church, Father, we would use your money wisely. For our fellowship, Father, afterwards, I pray that it would be sweet and encouraging and uplifting. Bless the food that's been brought and prepared. Bless us, Father, as we partake of it. And Father, I pray also that you'd bless this time of baptism. Again, I thank you for uh, the obedience of those who are, uh, are doing this. Thank you, Father. Thank you for who you are and what you do. In Jesus' name, amen.